You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole, and I am just one of your hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and coming at you live, or I guess, you know, whenever you're listening, so, you know, live enough. And with me, as she is every single week, I'm so excited to have with me, of course, the one and only Christy Morris. I just got flushed down the drain from El Dorado. Oh, oh, well, I'm so glad you're okay. I mean... Yeah, I mean, thank goodness. Someone held the door for me, so Hodor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good reference right there. Well, we're so excited to be here tonight. We're going to be talking about... National Treasure Book of Secrets, basically National Treasure 2, even though there's no 2 in the title. And uh, before we get there, I want to say a huge thank you uh, to everyone who's listening. Christy, I don't know if you know this, but um, we have not read this review out. We got a brand new review over on uh, Apple Podcasts, and so really wanted to say a huge thank you to Ruthie2003. They said, love this podcast, five stars. I love listening to this podcast. It helps me relax. It keeps me productive. Highly recommend for all fandom nerds. Keep up the great work. Wow. Thank you, Ruthie. That's so sweet. Isn't that great? Like, it just makes me feel good when, obviously, people have good things to say about uh, the work we do. But um, really want to say huge thank you to you, Ruthie, for spending the time to give us a review uh, and a rating there on Apple Podcasts. And You know, if you're new to the show and you haven't given us one, please do. Uh, If you aren't new to the show, but you still haven't given us one, please do. And if you're new to us, also uh, go over to Twitter and follow us at the 602 Club. And of course, we're on Instagram as well, at the 602 Club TFM. Uh, We've got the entire network at Trek FM. You could follow as well to see everything we're doing here. Uh, You can go uh, to Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM to see all the shows, as well as we've got a listeners-only discussion group that listeners from all over the world can discuss the different things that are happening here on the network. It's called the Babel Conference, so if you were to search Facebook, you'll find that. Uh, And then there's, of course, the website, trek.fm, where you can find everything that we're doing here. We've got a lot that's going on these days. And we'd really appreciate it if you would go over to Patreon uh, and support the network. We absolutely could use your help. This is uh, not free to do this. It costs a lot of money. So please go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. Want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millett, and Daniel Noah. Really do uh, appreciate them supporting the network and making sure that all of this quality content keeps coming to you uh, each and every week. And so, again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. So, well, Chrissy, uh, you know, we mentioned what we're going to be talking about tonight, and that is the second movie for National Treasure. And so, you know, uh, we had a good time talking about the first one, but I'm really interested. So... Coming in and looking for another treasure, 
One, this movie did well at the box office. The first one did. And so, of course, they were going to follow it up with a sequel, even though it wasn't planned. And so when you heard this was getting a sequel, how did you feel? I was uh, initially pretty skeptical because I'll admit I've always been not a huge fan of sequels, um, Mm -hmm. except for certain ones that ended up going very well. Obviously, Star Wars, for example. Sure. Um, But generally, it feels like Lion King 2. You know, like I'm always worried. (laughs) Yeah, like that you're just diluting the good things that were in the original Mm -hmm. and coming across greedy like you just want to make more movies to make more money. And I mean, hey, everyone wants to make money, but still make a good movie. So I wasn't initially thrilled about it, but I still ended up going to see it in the theater. So I do remember seeing this for the first time in the theater in 2007. Did you see it in the theater as well? I am pretty sure that I did. Um, you know, I had liked the first one, and I just don't recall, you know, I part of uh, going to the movies as much as I do, it's hard to remember, uh, you know, the theater experience for every single movie that you end up going to see. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that I had seen this in the theater. And, you know, what I, uh, you know, coming into this and in, in doing a sequel, I this is before I... F- I don't know, maybe before, but it didn't feel like they were trying to turn every single thing into a franchise just yet. And maybe they were, and I just wasn't paying enough attention. I don't know. But, you know, I kind of like the idea that there had been no plans for a sequel with this, you know, and that it was more along the lines of, hey, this is a surprise hit. People seem to like this. Is there a way that we could do a sequel? And, you know, some of my favorite movies and and movies that I felt like have been really well done that have had, you know, uh, fantastic runs uh, as a franchise because they got turned into one um, really came across. And and I always use this as an example, but, you know, the, the newer Planet of the Apes movies were like that. They didn't plan specifically, hey, we're doing three movies and, you know, uh, it was more we're going to put everything into one movie, make sure it goes well. And, you know, I I guess we could always do something else, but that's not the plan. It's, it's you know, um, mm-hmm. and so it is interesting because, you know, Disney had had this experience, though, with Pirates of the Caribbean, of course, you know, uh, the first one does really well. And, of course, they decide they're going to do more. And there, of course, you know, they got greedy because they immediately are going to do two sequels instead of just one. And so I got to give it to them here. You know, they just do one movie as a sequel. And, um, you know, they they don't try to do a massive cash grab by turning into a franchise that they're going to have like 30 different sequels to. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I I think that works for me as well in the film in the film's favor. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that they went about it the right way with this one, at least in exactly what you're saying. Give it a minute to breathe. And then if it does well, we're, we're going to go ahead and do another one. Um, but not planning out a whole slew of additional movies. <laughs> yeah. Not like, yeah. Oh, we're going to have, you know, we're going to have the National Treasure, you know, cinematic universe kind of thing. Um, exactly. You know, so, no. that and, and this is obviously before that really hit the ground running with, with Marvel and all. So, but... So this one, too, obviously, you know, when you're going to go after another treasure in a movie, the story really makes all the difference. And and I think that's one of the things we talked about in the first one, that it felt like the story, as fun and 
outlandish it was. It really worked. And so I wanted to talk to you about, you know, with this film, and I wanted to know how you felt like this story held up, especially in light of the first movie. I think that they did a really good job with looking at this as another opportunity to tell a new version of the story, not not rewriting the the previous movie or anything, but mm-hmm. looking at another part of history that they could tell, mm-hmm. um, obviously in a fictional manner. <laughs> but, you right. know, um, it, they did the route of um, the initial you know, beginnings of America being an independent nation in 1776. So now where were they going to go with it? So I thought that it was clever to then start with another big moment in America's history, but further along um, at this, just after the end of the civil war. Um, and I, I'm not a huge history buff, but I know a little bit at least. Um, and I, it was nice to see a different take on that era in history um, and also them weaving in the Gates family into the assassination of Lincoln um, and then trying to figure out the motivations of this other person and his family. Um, I, I just thought it was a, a cool way to still have some mystery and a different plot to tell. I do think that that was a good idea. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you on that front, you know, not trying to just recapture the magic of you know, going off the Revolutionary War era, going to the Civil War era, mm-hmm. and, you know, having this this idea of, you know, the fact that this is kind of a trait for the, the family, the Gates family of being kind of like code breakers and, and really good with those kind of things. Um, and that tying this in with, you know, the Lincoln assassination and this idea of there being, the, the you know, the Knights of the Golden Circle who... Or the you know the Secret Service basically of of the Confederacy um, was I thought it really interesting and of course you know like the first movie and kind of going into these secret organizations and everything uh, I thought was really fascinating to 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 play with that as an idea um, mm-hmm. and then you know I think you know one of the things that was interesting to me too about the story is how. In it, and one of the things that like it was really fascinating thinking about in light of today was how just an allegation of something can completely ruin somebody's life, regardless of whether it's in the end proven to be true. And this mm-hmm. movie plays with that idea in the story, and I thought that also made it really interesting because you know, even at this point. Ben Gates realizes that if we don't prove my great grandfather, you know, to be innocent very quickly, this just goes south in terrible ways. Um, and he'll will always be known as his family, regardless if we, you know, do in the future find him to be innocent. And and that was something that was really interesting to watch them play with as well. Yeah, I think that it was great, like leaning into that, there could be a black mark on my family permanently, even though this was something that happened so long ago, because it's still your family name 
you know, and especially for at least his family being so visible in society. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, maybe, for example, you and I wouldn't be as affected by that, maybe. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, depending on who you are, it might. And I, I like them throwing in that reference to um, your name is mud. I don't know if that's actually mm-hmm. true, but it was a, a cool metaphor to use. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right with that, too. Um, and, and it was, you know, I, I think what it was fun about this story um, is, and, and I think, but I guess the only question I have with you, the whole idea of there being um, a hidden, you know, golden city in, you know, South Dakota, uh, mm-hmm. and that, you know, Mount Rushmore was used to kind of like cover that up. Um, it seemed, and, and I know, you know, uh, obviously this is kind of based in history with the idea of the seven golden cities that, you know, uh, they're looking, the conquistadors are looking for um, in their travels. And of course, nobody ever finds any of these. Um, but it did, I think, with the story, that's one thing that felt a little bit silly to me. Like, uh, like, how did that city get buried mm-hmm. underneath? You know, basically Mount Rushmore. It it that that whole part seemed a little bit strange to me, and and it was that was like the ultimate leap in logic that I felt like hurt this story a little bit more than say in the first movie where. I feel like everything seemed much more quote unquote and in, in air quotes possible, you know, like that one mm. really felt like it, 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 you know, um, it jumped the monument. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that was a good joke. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I had to think about it for a second. Um, yeah, it, I think that you hit the nail on the head with that because that was in the first movie, like the um, Freemasons had compiled all of these treasures from lots of lost societies into one place and kept it somewhere safe. And it would make sense that they would then bring it to that place um, because it was considered kind of a a sacred place in America. Um, But this comes across as like, I was kind of joking about like the city of El Dorado, you know, the city of Mm -hmm. gold, things like that, that we just have come to know are not in this country. Right. And so for that to be under Mount Rushmore, you immediately go, uh, uh, hmm. (laughs) I don't think that's possible. Good try. And it feels a Mm -hmm. little bit too much. Like it's suspending disbelief way beyond Mm-hmm. what we can go with yeah it would have been more believable if it was something like amassed treasures again from different places mm-hmm. or one particular one that was brought there like maybe it was artifacts from the city of gold or something but it also didn't feel like it was hidden very well yeah it did it did seem just strange um like you hit this latch and then there it is yeah yeah yeah, and I mean, it, it it just seemed strange as to where it was and how it was hidden and the link with Mount Rushmore. And I kind of, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I get the idea of the Mount Rushmore being, a, you know, part of American history and, and everything. Um, 
uh, and and you know this this kind of monument, but it just it felt a little strange as like that that was this thing that was created to help hide in some ways, like you know I, I don't know it it was just it was it was odd and so. And I want to pose a question that I just thought of to you. Wouldn't it have been better possibly if the treasure was the book? Mm -hmm. You know, because like that was cool. They totally had me eating out of the palm of their hand when they're going to the Library of Congress and putting in the passcode to get the box of the book that only presidents have ever Mm -hmm. seen or know for sure exists. Well, and part of it, too, I think I think this is what kind of stretched credulity with a story and obviously you know we're talking about a ridiculous movie but um because mount rushmore is you know a project that started in 1927 and then went to 1941 and so to have it be something that like you're creating mount rushmore as a way to hide you know this place but you it's not started till 1927 and the the main part of the story kind of takes place in the civil war era. And obviously I know, you know, uh, you know, at that point, much of America isn't, uh, uh, is half as populated as it is now and everything, but still it just seems very strange, um, to me. And yeah, I mean, having the president's book, it seems like, you know, that is a really huge, part to this story and and i'll ask you about that you know just the book of secrets um you know the movie is called the book of secrets and how do you feel like that's utilized here in the story i think they blow past it and they could have definitely i mean i don't know maybe there was a reason for that maybe they felt like we don't want to insinuate things on actual history that aren't true and, you know, get ourselves in a pickle with, you know, mm-hmm. the FBI or something. <laughs> but I don't know. I just feel like there's been so many stories that have played with, you know, like what mm-hmm. really happened with the assassination of Lincoln or of Kennedy or Watergate or whatever, you know, that they could have made some kind of fictional story out of that mm-hmm. book. And it been a lot more interesting as being the treasure than going for the city of gold under Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think it is very strange. And and obviously, too, you know, as they're flipping through the book, you know, Riley keeps going, oh, 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 you know, like uh, Area 51, oh, the Kennedy assassination. You know, we just keep flipping by all these things that obviously, uh, you know, are huge when it when it comes to like secrets of national security, you know, Mm -hmm. things that have been rumored that every president is able to find out about, you know, uh, once they become president. And so, yeah, this, I think the book of secrets is, is in some ways a lost, a lost artifact to this movie, you know, in the sense that, like Mm -hmm. you said, it's not really utilized all that well. And I, I do think too, um, you know, just as we're talking about the movie and the kind of the story and those kind of things, I also feel like they don't have as many like stops and or parts to the mystery as they do in the first film. Uh, and so, you know, 
you know, that's a little because they go to Paris, they go to London, and you know, they go to Washington D.C. Um, and I guess they go, you know, uh, to to kidnap the president at that point. So, um, and you know, there doesn't seem to be, you know, as as many interesting or kind of cool stops in some ways uh and so i don't know uh, it was just it there yeah. is something that i do feel like is missing and and i think part of that is like the adventure of this movie you know you know from the first movie the places we visit and everything here i mean how do you feel about that here in the film yeah i think that's a good point that i didn't think about before of the um moments in the story leading up to the treasure it didn't feel like there were as many or that they were really finding big clues. It felt like the argumentative separated couple kind of took precedent over having cool discoveries. And I just think that they could have played that down a little more and focused more on the actual artifacts. Um, and I mean, I, I guess I get that they had to find some way to bring them back into the story and why they're either doing well or not doing well. I guess that, you know, they felt like it was more interesting to not have them living happily mm-hmm. ever after. But yeah, I think that you need something here like the x-ray glasses. Um, yeah, yeah. Not just, oh, this guy brought forward this page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, obviously I think it's fun that we, you know, go to France and connect that with, you know, the the fact that there are multiple versions of the Statue of Liberty, which is fun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the we talked about. Yeah, the desk, the Resolute desk. That desks, was cool. Which is fantastic. You know, having read a whole book about the Resolute, which was an incredible, cool book. And, you know, that was neat. But I do feel like, like you said, it, it felt like there was a little bit too much focus and not necessarily always in a bad way, but, and part of this I think is, is where you kind of run into the issue with this being a very shallow idea in the first place, like a a national treasure in the first movie, they kind of use all the really good stuff for the most part. And because America is a very young country, you know, and so mm-hmm. when it comes to like these type of things, there's there's just not as many things to pull from as like, you know, doing this in a European country where you've got, you know, thousand years of history or more, you know. Uh, and so or, you know, when you think about like, you know, even when we were talking about the mummy movies, when we we're talking about Egyptology and stuff, you know, we've got so much to pull here. You know, you just don't have as much to pull from. And and so I do think that that is something that that makes uh, you can tell that they are in many ways kind of scraping the barrel with trying to find places. And, and that's where maybe they really do are focusing kind of more a little bit more on the characters and kind of trying to expand that. And I mean, that's a big part of the movie of like where the characters are. Um, and you mentioned the fact that Ben and Abigail aren't together. And how did you feel about that in this movie? I, I don't know. Like I was saying, I, I kind of felt like they thought it was more interesting to have them separated and sort of parallel that relationship with the one of Ben's parents. 
but I think that they play it up too much and shouldn't have focused so much on the two of them being separated and arguing and making the big scene in Buckingham Palace. It just felt like a side quest (laughs) from the plot that we should have been following. So, yeah, I mean, and hey, why doesn't Riley ever get a romantic relationship? Yeah, until the, I guess, the very, very end of this movie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Could have had that going for him. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, so it was interesting because I I turned to my wife as we're watching the movie and I was like, this movie is kind of doing one of the main sequel tropes which is the fact that the characters who got together in the first movie aren't together in the second movie for reasons Mm. reasons and i absolutely agree with you in the sense that they you know because they're going to bring in helen murin as his mother uh, emily and that relationship with his father patrick uh and they're gonna try and you know do some mirroring there i I get what they're going for. I do think that this movie, it's it's almost as if it would have been more interesting to have Ben and Abigail be together and have the relationship with Emily and Patrick be one to which they kind of look at and be like, ooh, do we want to turn into that one day? You know, more than right. just trying to say, oh, both of these couples, you know, need to just find their way to like back to each other and everything. That's that's where I just feel like it was just too much of the same type of of dynamic. And it and the mirroring wasn't working well enough. Um, and part of that is because as much time as we actually spend with these characters fighting or whatever, none of their none of their issues seem to be really that deep. It really has, it really seemed more like these are just people who have spent too much time, not talking to one another, you know, like having Mm -hmm. actual conversations and listening. And yeah, that happens in relationships all the time, you know? Right. But it, it doesn't necessarily make it all that, I would say interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and two, the uh, I I agree with that. And then I also want to add in, if you think about it, when you see where Ben and Abigail live, and you see where his father lives, and then mm-hmm. you see Emily's office, I feel like these are rich people problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> None of those looked like my house growing up. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, I feel no. I don't really feel a whole lot of connection or like feel really sorry for what they're going through because they mm-hmm. it just seems like very like you were saying like superficial issues anyway and like that they could afford to spend all of their time when they were young chasing down clues and stuff as Emily was talking about you know and then saying one of us needed to stay home mm-hmm. with Ben it's like well then who was working <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it th- things like that that made me go, mm-hmm. yeah. Wish I knew what those problems were like. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It it just it did seem a little bit blasé, 
Like it, it, it wasn't mm-hmm. as well thought out as it could have been. And, you know, and it, it wasn't necessarily terrible to watch or anything because I mean, again, I, the best part about this too, you know, you throw Helen Mirren in the mix and I'll watch Helen Mirren do anything. She's wonderful and she's fun in this role. And, you know, but I do wish that I think the the biggest problem is, is that what's going on with Ben and Abigail and with Patrick and Emily is all very cliched, you know, it's there and yes. there's not a real, and it, and you can make a cliche uh, work, you know, but you have to really kind of mine the depth of that cliche and, and what is it going on with these characters and why are they there and, you know, how and why are they struggling with these issues? And, and that's just not something we really get in this film because that's not the type of film this is. This isn't an indie, you know, movie where we're really going to be digging into um, people's feelings, you know, and, right. you know, it's an action adventure movie from Disney. So uh, I think that was one thing that was a little bit frustrating. And, you know, honestly, the most, the funniest one was, and and maybe kind of more realistic was like Riley, you know, somebody who kind of comes into money, doesn't realize how to handle all that money and it goes badly and and you know his book's not necessarily doing great and like he he thinks um more of himself than he ought and like that's actually more an interesting story uh than a lot of the other because it's it's pretty realistic actually <laughs> as for people yeah. who get into money and they don't know how to handle it Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, think about all the people that have won the lottery and then didn't realize that they had to pay taxes mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, that's relatable and grounded. And yeah, I thought it was really good that they kind of throw that in, even though mm-hmm. it's minor toward the beginning, because that's something that happens to people, unfortunately. Yeah. So I do want to ask you, uh, you know, a big part of this movie, obviously, and a big part of the previews was the idea of we're going to you know, we're going to steal the president. We're going to kidnap the president. And um, how did that end up working for you here in the movie? I thought that was clever. I, I think that, you know, they initially bring it up in a such an incredulous way, which is mm-hmm. accurate, because how in the world would that be possible? That's right. one of the most difficult things you could probably try to do. But I think that the way that they go about it makes sense that it Mm -hmm. it could work um and if you have a president like this um who says you know that he was a yale history student and that lincoln was also his favorite president and is going to be intrigued by this map that ben brings to show him then yeah you know we can go off with him on that little trek it's a good way to get him alone and it's not mm-hmm. so much like we're going to sneak in his room in the middle of the right. night and lift him out on ropes, you know? Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great point. And, and I do think uh, that's one of those things where uh, the movie in, in some ways I think does kind of break credulity again. And, and that's where it's just like, it just, okay. So convenient that the president just happens to be somebody who's going to care about this, you know, and I guess maybe it could have been Mm -hmm. anything in any type of president, but it does seem a little pretty far fetched um, that, you know, the president would, you know, be somebody who would 
be able to fall for this. Um, but I, I think the best part about the whole, you know, stealing the president is that Bruce Greenwood is the president and I love him as an actor. Yes. You know, he's, he's great in Star Trek 09 as, uh, Pike, Christopher Pike. And, you know, I just, again, he, he's so likable and he, I think what's great, you know, you can't cast somebody who does feel very commanding as the idea of a president, you very realistic as a president, you know, uh, and so it ends up being fun because of who they cast. So I, you know, and, and a fact, and, and in fact, to the fact that he would be the type of person who would help, you know, was great. And, I, and too, on top of like the idea of the president, you know, I think this is one of the places where the movie, I think like the first one, we talked about how it kind of celebrates patriotism and, in America and the and the good things. I think this movie does that again, you know, um, and I was just struck by how I don't know if this movie would be made today, um, and I appreciated, you know, this uh, Ben's thought process about, you know, who the president is and the type of person that, that, that makes them because they are the president. And, you know, we're just so far removed from that in any way, shape, or form these days. It was nice to be in a place where people still thought that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, it had a sense of reverence for mm-hmm. the office of the president. Yep. Yeah. Um, 100%. And, you know, I, I think that it does definitely show a certain um, sway in you know the producers of this movie and the writers as well that it was written this way you know that that's Mm -hmm. something that they really care about um and it was nice to see you know like you're saying like i i like to believe in the honorable nature of how america began and i think that the casting for him was perfect for playing the president um and showing that sort of twinkle in his eye as well of uh you know yes he has or he has and the office of the president as we mm-hmm. actually know it in real life um yeah. has its secrets you know yes. good or bad um and that, you know there are things that we may never know and i i thought that was cool mm-hmm. no 100 percent um well i wanted to ask you too so you know we talked a little bit about the fact that this takes place uh, the beginning of the movie and the kind of setup for it is the, is the Civil War and our villain, our new villain, uh, is Mitch, who, you know, uh, grand great grandfather was a, basically a part of you know the Confederacy, was a general in that war and passed down this story and and everything to his. Uh, ancestors and so it's kind of the the juxtaposition between him and Ben really and you know he's become kind of a black market dealer Um, and I was though just I mean Ed Harris is great and everything he does he's fantastic in this role he's kind of the perfect person to be playing this person because he can be likable and awful all at the same time Um, but I was kind of a little bothered I guess by the fact that we're dealing with a person whose ancestors was looking to prolong the Civil War and by finding the treasure and then just having no remorse 
hurtful feelings about his family's lineage are part in the war and in some ways even glorifying them. And then at the end, you know, we also give him credit for, you know, finding the treasure, you know, and I, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It felt really uncomfortable because the way it was written came across like it was it was okay for him to want to prolong the Civil War or to even have the Confederacy win and that apparently the Queen was in on it, you know, supporting the Confederacy to help keep America divided. Um, it just came across like they were trying to make him likable for those things um or at least that it was a justifiable reason and that shouldn't be the case <laughs> um i think it, you know you and i definitely would feel that way so yeah that was just weird writing i think that they could have at least made it where he has a change of heart in that scene in the city um and admits that he was wrong but all he does is say, I'm sorry about sullying your family's mm, name. Right. And I still yep. want to be given credit for this. And it's like, no, you also need to say that you're sorry and you're going to renounce all of the stuff that your family was part of. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think it would have been easy to write it as that the reason that he's after this is because he's looking to give his family a good name. By finding this treasure and then being able to, you know, do the same type of thing that Ben had done with that treasure, which is basically give it back, you know, Mm -hmm. and and to give his family a name that isn't tied to, you know, his great grandfather having been a Civil War general. So, um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so I think it's an easy fix, honestly. It's just, there's this, I just, uh, you know, uh, I don't think that there's a lot of places where, you know, people should be necessarily proud of those choices, you know? Um, And they're not responsible for the choices of their grandparents or whatever, right? So, I. Nobody's responsible right. for any choice but their own. And but he, you know, um, has made a lot of wrong choices, obviously being just this black market dealer and and being willing to like kill people to get what he wants. Yeah. Until the very end where he's you know, he because of circumstance, he it, and, and this is the other thing, it's more of circumstance that he ends up saving their lives, right? You know, right. because it wasn't again, a change of heart. Yeah. Exactly. So I, I think that's the other thing that just kind of made me feel a little bit uncomfortable with, with that as well. And I get that, you know, Ben gives him credit um, because that's who Ben is, right? That's the type of person he is. But it, the reflection on what we're talking about with Mitch's heritage in you know, family choices, it's like, He's just not really a great guy, you know? So, uh, yeah, that, that part just really bothered me. Even though, again, Ed Harris is perfect for the role. Like, he plays it perfectly. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, it had nothing to do with his performance. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I love him. 
Yeah, he's fantastic. So, well, you know, before we get to talking about some ratings, um, Disney Plus is actually going to be doing a National Treasure TV show. And uh, so I what do you think about this idea of kind of revamping the, the series, you know, the, the movie for uh, and reimagining the franchise into something new? Like, I don't know. What do you think? I'm a little disappointed to hear that because it sounds like they want to rewrite the whole thing because they said this would be like a prequel. Um, and, um, it, I don't know. I just, I got the vibe from reading the article about it, that it was going to start reset everything. And I like the general things that these two movies were exploring. So I don't feel like it needs to be rewritten. And then too, like you and I were saying also, it's just the America being such a young country compared to the rest of the world. What else do you have to pull from to then make a series of episodes, you know? Right. So, yeah, I, I'm just kind of left wondering if it's going to be any good at all because there's just no material to use for it. Yeah, I like the way you put that. Um, I, I, And I agree with you. I don't really see this as being a great idea. Um, I honestly don't think that even doing a sequel to this movie would have been a great idea. Um, I, I feel yeah. like this movie, to me, showed that the by the end of this one, it was kind of a played out idea. And so nothing about the Disney Plus show really excites me in any way, shape or form. Um, I, you know, like you said, even just reimagining it, you're like, OK, but so what are you going to do with that reimagination? You know, and Why? Uh, mm -hmm. that seems to be a little bit strange. And what are you going to be going after time after time? You know, uh, you, I mean, I guess you could do the whole, you know, first season can just be about one treasure hunt, right? But again, it Maybe. just seems to be a very small idea. And it doesn't make sense to me as to why um, why I would want to watch. I don't know. Nothing nothing yeah. about what I read excites me at all. Um, and I think part of it has to do mainly with just the experience with this film, um, which I guess leads me to then kind of where you would come down with your rating for Book of Secrets. So I had to kind of think about it because there are things I like about this movie, but it still ended up leaving me wanting more and uh, not in a good way and wishing that especially with the final treasure and the actual book of secrets um, that you eliminated the prior one and uh, that it was all just about the book, I think would have been a lot more interesting story. Um, so I come down to giving this a two and a half out of five, um, caves under Mount Vernon, um, because it just, it, there were a few things that didn't quite fit. And I think you definitely called it with the writing of the villain. Um, it ended up feeling a little, um, lackluster at the end. He mm -hmm. just 
dies as a person who wanted all of the glory and was willing to kill people for it. Ta-da. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that is, like I said, both. There, there were good things. I thought the book was really cool. I thought that the bringing in of Helen Mirren was a great choice. I do think that Ed Harris is a good actor, even though the character wasn't written very well. And it was nice to have Nick Cage and Riley and, you know, the gang back together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, ultimately still the first one is better. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm probably somewhere between a two and a half and a three. You know, if I'm being generous, I'd give it a three. And partly just because, mm-hmm. you know, I do still like this cast. Um, and I, I, you know, the addition of Helen Murin to the group was really fun. Um, and, and of course I just, I love her and everything. And so I, I thought that was enjoyable, but I mean, I, I think, you know, on a, on a bad day, it's probably a two and a half, you know, or maybe when I'm being more critical, it's a two and a half. So I, I, I'm absolutely right there with you. You know, this is just an idea to which I don't know if there ever really needed to be a sequel to, because the ideas are very sparse when it comes to what you can be chasing because of the age of our country. You know, they're just creating secrets out of all of that. You know, it's just not enough to really drive the narrative of a story. And I think to me, this movie, especially rewatching it, I just kind of felt that as we were watching it. And uh, so absolutely 100% agree with you there. So, but uh, Christy, I'm really interested as we dive into recommendations, what you would like to recommend to everybody here on the 602 Club. Yeah. So uh, if people follow me on Instagram and Facebook, you may have seen this, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you again, I recommend checking out the first book that I've read in a while. Um, And it's actually the literary debut of an actor named Robert Sheehan who you may know as Klaus from Umbrella Academy. Um, It's called Disappearing Act, a host of other characters in 16 short stories. And it just is a really interesting look into a Robert Sheehan's weird head, which is a a funny place. (laughs) If you've ever heard him just talk off the cuff, he's just kind of a very introspective person. And so these are short stories from his mind of just different characters that he's come up with. And it's really good so far. So if you like Robert Sheehan and you like short stories, I recommend checking out Disappearing Act. Very nice. Very nice. Well, we're both going to be recommending books tonight because uh, I am also going to be recommending a book and, um, it comes out. I'm uh, finishing up the book right now uh, so I can write the review for it. But it is Thrawn, Lesser Evil. Uh, it is the third book in the Thrawn Ascendancy uh, trilogy, and it's actually the last book in that series. And I'm recommending that you pick that up there uh, as it comes out here on the 16th as uh, Timothy Zahn wraps up his Thrawn Ascendancy trilogy Guys, it's fantastic, um, and uh, I won't give anything away other than to say I 100% believe that you should buy this book and read it. Um, we'll be talking about it here on the 602 Club there in December, so you'll have plenty of time to read it, and it's a monster book, too. It's one of the, I think it, next to Star by Star, it's the longest Star Wars book that's ever been written. 
you can write me and let me know if I'm wrong, but it's 548 pages. So Jeez. most Star Wars books are about 300, 330, somewhere around that. So, but it's a hundred percent worth it. So I, that is what I'm going to be recommending to all of the listeners here of the 602 club. Uh, but Christy, if people want to catch up with you though, and see what else you've got going on outside of the 602 club, where can they find you? Well, you can find me, of course, on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And I'm sometimes over in the Babel Conference on Facebook. And when I'm not here on 602 Club, I also do a show called Sabres and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And uh, Amanda and Teresa are some awesome co-hosts with me. And we talk about geeky stuff we don't usually get to talk about. So hope that you'll check that out, too, everywhere at Sabres and Spells. Well, and uh, of course, uh, next week you can catch Amanda here as she's going to help us talk about the Eternals coming out. Right. So that's going to be really fun. So hopefully everybody check that out. Of course, you could find me wherever uh, you uh, are on social media. Um, You just look for the name Matt Rushing 2 and you will find me there most likely. Um, I'm on pretty much most of the major social media networks. And of course, you can find me here uh, in the 602 Club feed doing Snyder Cuts as well as Assembling Avengers with John Mills. Uh, Snyder Cuts, of course, was about everything that Zack Snyder has directed. And then, of course, we're walking through every single Marvel movie again together, kind of looking at the movie critically and kind of away from the hype which is a lot of fun so uh you can find us there on assembling avengers and then of course doing the orb warp 5 and literary tracks uh the orb is about star trek deep space 9 warp 5 is about star trek enterprise and literary tracks is about the books and the comics of star trek and then over on the nerd party network i have a finished show that you can check out and i hope you will which is really fun it's called Outpost. I did that with Dre Kaufman. We talked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And last but not least, you can find me on Aggressive Negotiations talking about Star Wars with John Mills. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? 